2 Timothy chapter 2, and we're going to be looking at the first 13 verses this evening. 2 Timothy 2, verse 1. If you're new to the scriptures and kind of wondering where 2 Timothy is, it's in the New Testament. It's towards the end of your Bible. Probably easiest to go to Revelation and then go back to your left a little bit till you get to 2 Timothy. If you don't have a Bible, we have Bibles at the door to be able to give to you. If you still can't find it, that's okay. Just turn to the person next to you, ask for some help. Or take their Bible and give them yours and you'll be set. So 2 Timothy chapter 2. Let's pray that God would bless our time in the word. Father, as we open up the word, we pray that you would open up our hearts. That it would really sink in and bring forth fruit. That you would give us that spiritual understanding and greater knowledge of you. Please send your Holy Spirit to lead us and guide us in truth. In Jesus' name, amen. When you buy a pair of shoes, what's the intent for purchasing those shoes? To be used, right? You buy them to wear them, and that's the purpose of it. If you purchase a car, whether it's a new car or a used car, you buy it to drive it. If you get some medicine because you're sick, it's for the purpose of being applied to your body. The list goes on and on. And when it comes to the gospel, the gospel is meant to be applied. It's to affect every aspect of our lives. So what's the gospel? The gospel is that Jesus Christ died for our sins and rose again three days later according to the scriptures. 1 Corinthians 15 tells us it's good news. It's what we're about as Christians, that Jesus gave his life for us. In our Bible study tonight, if you look down and you focus your attention on verse 8, verse 8 is the pivotal verse. It's the foundational verse of the section It says this, remember that Jesus Christ of the seed of David was raised from the dead according to my gospel. And everything around that in this discussion is how the gospel applies to our lives, how it applies to our everyday life, the death and the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Because it's not that the gospel just brings us into a place of forgiveness with God, and that's our last contact with the gospel. Okay, I'm forgiven, I'm good to go. I've got my get out of jail free card. I'm not going to hell and I'll just check in with God when I get to heaven. We've entered into this relationship where it impacts our heart and our life. So that's the intent, that's the focus of our message of the scripture this evening is that we would apply the gospel in our lives. So verse one of chapter two, you therefore my son be strong in the grace that is in Christ Jesus. Paul's writing to Timothy. And he calls him his son. What warm words that would be for Timothy. He didn't see Timothy as a protege, as a disciple, as a student. He invested in him as a son. We know that the relationships inside of the body of Christ can be as strong or stronger than even biological bonds. You may have some friendships with brothers and sisters in Christ that are even stronger than inside of your own family. And as Paul's about ready to die... As he's in prison in Rome, he's going to be executed for his love for Jesus Christ, his commitment to Christ. He pins this to Timothy. It's filled with emotion. He says, my son, be strong in the grace that is in Christ Jesus. So this is the first way that the gospel is to be applied. It's strength and grace. Strength and grace. Because Jesus has died for our sins and rose again, there's grace to be given to us 
for salvation, but also to empower us for Christian living, for this life that God has called us to. So what is grace? Grace is when you receive something that you don't deserve. So you deserve a consequence, you deserve judgment, but instead, your lavished favor upon you. We sang tonight, lead me to the cross, and as we come to the cross of Jesus Christ, he's punished for our sin. And the key word here is be strong in the grace that is in Christ Jesus. The grace is in Christ. And because Christ died for us and rose again, God can pour grace upon us. If it wasn't for Christ and our position in him, we couldn't be the objects of God's grace tonight. As much as God would want to give grace, he couldn't be just if he didn't punish Christ for our sin. Jesus hung upon the cross and he said, it is finished. He's paid the price for us for our salvation, but also to give us the strength through that same grace for the calling that he has given to us. I think this is really freeing. Because as we're going to look and see the exhortations that are given to us, a lot of times we think, well, I have to do this on my own strength. I've got to do this by my own works. But that's not it at all. It's a strength that comes from depending upon God. Be strong in grace. Consider that for just a minute. Don't those words seem like oxymorons? That they're contrary to each other? Because we think of strength a lot of times in and of ourselves But grace is an outside source. And really, strength and grace come through weakness. Have you found that to be true? That's what Paul found in his life. He had a thorn in his flesh that he asked God to take away. Have you had a few thorns in your flesh? A difficult boss? A difficult health situation? The list goes on and on. And God, please just take this thorn out of my life. Sometimes God says no. I'm not taking the thorn out of your life. And that's what God said to Paul. And he said, my grace is sufficient for you. My strength is made perfect in weakness. See, that's grace for daily living. That's grace to be able to get through life. So you have a responsibility that's been given in your life by God. You can either try to do it in your own strength or you can come to God and seek this strength that comes through weakness and admit, God, I can't do this. I know you've called me. I know you've put this on me, but there's no way that I can do this. You're gonna have to help me. Now, because verse one is there doesn't mean that it's automatically appropriated in our lives. It's almost to me like this, as if my cell phone is losing its power. It's just not going to automatically going to be recharged. I have to plug it in, don't I? And it's, we have to seek out this grace. We have to admit our weakness. We have to come to a place of, I can't do this on my own. And that's what Paul's saying to Timothy. Be strong in grace, Timothy. Come to realize you can't do this calling as a pastor in your own strength, in your own personality. Do it in the power of God's might. So to be able to be strong in grace, it takes humility, doesn't it? It takes us realizing, I can't do it on my own. Now, what happens if we're not strong in grace? It leads to two things, pride or condemnation. If we try to do it apart from God's strength, then we go, man, I'm doing pretty good. I don't know why people can't be like me, and I think I'm even going to write a book on how to be a great Christian, Here's the 10 ways to be a great Christian and be just like me. 
That's really prideful, isn't it? And it comes before a fall, but unfortunately, sometimes we get there because we think that we're all that and a bag of chips, right? It leads to pride or it leads to condemnation, which is probably something that we all struggle with. Oh, Lord, I I failed. there's, There's no way that I could ever be used by you because we're not basing it on the grace that's in Christ Jesus. We're not strong in grace. We're strong in our own works. If grace is gonna be an active agent in my life, I also have to allow it to be an active agent in other people's lives. Grace is great in my life, but a lot of times I get upset when God's gracious to somebody else. Like, God, why don't you give them what they deserve? Oh, wait a second. You don't give me what I deserve. So, Applying the gospel to your life is asking for help and grace in the struggles that we have daily. Verse two, and the things that you've heard from me among many witnesses, commit these to faithful men who will be able to teach others also. This is the second way that the gospel is applied in our lives. It's legacy and sharing. Legacy in sharing. This is the title of First and Second Timothy our series is legacy because it's passing on and receiving. And Paul's passing on to Timothy, but Timothy's responsibility is to pass on to others. And how does this tie into the gospel? How is it applying to Jesus's death and resurrection? Because if the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ has impacted us, then we should care about others, right? That's the gospel applied. That's the gospel worked out in my life is I'm forgiven, I'm going to heaven. There's something that's selfish if I'm not concerned about somebody who doesn't know Christ as their savior, someone who's going to hell. It's a scary prayer, but I think it's worthwhile if we would seek God that he would give us a heart for souls and we would meditate on what hell is like even for five or 15 minutes. It's sobering. And once we think about hell and we think about heaven and we realize God's grace and his death and resurrection in our lives, it causes us to say, I want to reach a lost and dying world. And and how is the best way that we can go about and we can reach people for Jesus Christ? Jesus told us it's make disciples. The great commission is to go into all the world, make disciples, baptizing them in the name of Jesus the Father, the Son, the Holy Spirit, and teaching them to obey the commands of Christ. How does that break down? How do you make a disciple? It's verse two. It's right here. As you begin to invest in someone else what's been invested in you with the expectation that they, in turn, will go and invest in someone else. Verse two tells us a lot of things. First, you have heard. You have heard from me. Timothy first put, him play, put himself in the place where he was a good learner. He'd heard. He'd been in Bible study. He'd spent time with Paul. He had a teachable heart. And in order to make a disciple, you've got to be a disciple. And we all have to first hear and become teachable. And then as he has heard it, now's the next step is he's com- to commit it. He's to pass it on. Just like Paul passed it on to him, he's to pass it on to others. But specifically, who's he to pass it on to? Faithful men, faithful men. So when you're looking at who you're gonna invest your life into in a personal way, you can't invest your life into everybody. Jesus had 12 disciples. 
we'll be lucky if we could pour our lives into two or three, right? So how do you find those two or three? Well, you've got to look for faithful men and women. Someone who has a heart to be mentored, a heart to be taught, and say, that's the person that I'm going to pass on the things that I've learned and pass on the things that have been committed to me. And the last thing verse 2 tells us is that they're to be able to teach others. There's also a capacity that Timothy was to be looking for that they could go and share these truths with others, an accountability to go and do so. You guys want to know when studying the Bible gets really exciting and Bible study gets really exciting on a Saturday night? Now, transparency time, this is a little bit of honesty time. I think it's extremely hard to sit and listen to a sermon for 45 minutes. If I were in your shoes right now, I'd be doing a little bit of this right here, you know? And I'd be doing what some of you guys are doing where you're like... (laughs) Or falling asleep. It's hard to sit and engage for 45 minutes. But if we take on this perspective of the things that I'm hearing in the word... I'm going to pass it on to someone else. When I teach it, it impacts me in a greater way. When you share it, it's going to impact you in a greater way. Just try it. Do your devotions and pray that God would show you something that you're so stoked out of your mind about that you can't help but share with somebody else that day. God's committed truth to your heart, so now you're passing it on to someone else. As we come on Saturday nights, and I know this is a little bit countercultural, is we're not just here for ourselves. God's not edifying us just to make us fat and lazy. Ouch, right? He's building us up in the knowledge of Him so that we can go and share with others. We can commit it to others. We don't want to be like the Dead Sea where there's fresh water coming in, but there's no water going out, so it becomes stagnant and dead. We've all seen stagnant water, and our spiritual life will become stagnant if we don't pass it on to someone else. For some reason, we think we've got to be perfect in order to enter into a mentor type of relationship with someone else to pass on truth. But as we've studied Timothy, was he perfect? Was he the best candidate for this? Had he been pastoring long enough? Here he was, a young man, struggled with his health. He was fearful and he was timid, but he had spent time with the Apostle Paul learning these things, and it was his job then to pass them on to others. I find that some of the most effective mentors are not perfect people, but transparent people, right? Saying, these are things that I've learned. These are some things that I've learned the hard way. Now I'm passing them on to you, and I would encourage you to pass that on with someone else. This is the gospel applied. This is the gospel in my life where I'm caring about others. I want to help to equip believers so that they can go out and share the gospel of Jesus Christ with people that don't know Christ as their Savior. From verse 4 down to verse 6, we get three illustrations. And it's learning and illustration is the next point. Learning and illustration. And hopefully it makes sense here. Paul gives us three kinds of people that we're to learn from. It's the soldier, it's the athlete, and it's the hardworking farmer. So verse 4, excuse me, verse 3. You therefore must endure hardship as a good soldier of Jesus Christ. 
because we care about others and care about others being equipped to be able to take out the gospel, there's gonna be hardship. Endure hardship as a good soldier of Jesus Christ. Could you imagine someone signing up to be in the army, in the military, knowing that they're facing a deployment, not understanding that there's gonna be hardships that come with being a soldier? We're humbled, it's, it's heroic, the men and the women that go into battle, that lay down their lives for, for us to have freedom. They understand that there's gonna be hardship. And the same for us, this is gospel applied to our lives. Jesus died for my sins and he rose again, he's my Lord, and I understand as he's my Lord that I'm entering into a battle. Church, do you know that, that there's a battle? And the battle's for souls, That's what the battle is. And if we apply the gospel to our lives and care about those that don't know Christ as our savior, you're gonna enter into hardship. And it's us adopting the mindset of a soldier that says, I understand that there's hardship that comes with suffering for the gospel, but it's worthwhile. And we see why it's worthwhile. Verse four, no one engaged in warfare entangles himself with the affairs of this life, that he may please him who has enlisted him as a soldier. When men talk about and write about, when they're facing intense combat, what motivated them to lay down their lives to make the ultimate sacrifice as men survived D-Day and went on to Omaha Beach and had the Germans firing at them, the Nazis firing at them, certain death to get on the beach and try to take the beach. They said that they were willing to make that sacrifice because of their commanding officers and their fellow soldiers. The camaraderie is so deep, it's so grand, it's so great, they're connected in such a way that they say, I'm willing to lay down my life because of my commanding officer, my fellow soldiers. And who's our commanding officer? What's the cause? It's Christ. He's the one who's enlisted us. He's the one that's recruited us. He's saved us. He's paid the price for us. He's laid down his life. And so we say, all right, I'm gonna endure hardship because I wanna please my commander, Jesus Christ. Also here in verse four, it says that soldiers engaged in warfare so he can't be entangled in the affairs of daily life. We have a lot of men and women from our church that have served in deployments and in combat and have had the privilege to sit and talk with them as, as they come back. And I ask them, how do you get through it? How do you deal with these 18 months where you were in Iraq and Afghanistan? And they'll begin to express that it took all of their focus that their heart, their mind, their energy had to be on the battlefield just to be able to survive, just to be able to come home alive. And it was their spouse back here that ran the daily life, that made sure the mortgage was paid and the rent was paid and the children were, were taken care of. And that's the kind of focus that we're to have as the gospels impacted our lives. Don't get me wrong that we're to check out of our family responsibilities but we're to understand how many things do I not need to be entangled with in this life because I have the greater mission of this battle. Does that make sense? When we look at eternity and we go, once I'm in eternity and I'm in heaven, how many of the things that I'm worrying about tonight really don't matter? I can let those things go 
in order to try to engage in this battle. I want to clarify this because I think some could hear this and they could go, well, then I don't need to pay my rent because I'm engaged in this spiritual battle or I don't need to take care of my kids because I'm engaged in the spiritual battle. No, engaging in the spiritual battle is paying your rent and mortgage on time because you want to be a witness to your landlord and whoever your mortgage is with, amen? It is fulfilling your family responsibilities for the purpose of our children knowing the glory of the gospel. Does that make sense? But it's doing it for a higher cause and a higher good of God's glory than just getting through those responsibilities. Honestly, I find verse three and four really challenging because I've been praying through this and meditating upon it. Do I have a mindset that I'm gonna endure suffering for the sake of the gospel as a good soldier? That's challenging. The next illustration that we're to learn from in verse 5. And also, if anyone competes in athletics, he's not crowned unless he competes according to the rules. Two names come to mind. Alex Rodriguez and Lance Armstrong. If you're a sports fan, it's coming to your mind as well. New York Yankees, shortstop, is not playing this year. He's suspended for the whole year because of drug use. And if you've watched any of the news interviews with him, it hasn't really humbled him, you know, as, as he's trying to wade his, through the, his way through this. Lance Armstrong, great bicyclist, Tour de France. So all these titles stripped away because he didn't obey the rules. They disciplined themselves. They exercised. They did all of those things, but they broke the rules when it came to drugs Athletics is nothing new. It was huge in Paul's culture. These are illustrations that are part of daily life, Roman soldiers, and also the Olympics. They would know of athletes that got disqualified because they didn't obey the rules. Now, when you're an athlete, you don't get to make up the rules, right? Lance Armstrong didn't get to make up the rules. Alex Rodriguez didn't get to make up the rules. And when it comes to our Christian life, we don't get to make up the rules, do we? And when it comes to being able to pass on things to others and commit things to others and a life that is impactful with the Great Commission, we've got to take into account that we need to walk according to God's word. Samson comes to mind. Samson's a guy that didn't obey the Lord, did he? Great potential, great promise. His sin really cost him. And at the end of his life, he called out to God and God was gracious heard that prayer, and some Philistines died in the moment of his death, but you can't really say that Samson finished well. He finished in the grace of God, by the mercy of God, returned to the Lord in the ninth hour, which is better late than never. But Samson's life is really not what we would want for our life, would we? We wouldn't want anybody to say at our memorial, he was a real Samson, you know? He was a real womanizer, you know, he loved the Lord and he could teach the Bible, but man, his problem was women and it sure, sure caught up with them. That's, that's not what we want. We, we want a life that reflects God by, by his, his glory. Another challenging illustration for us. The third's the farmer in verse six. The hardworking farmer must first, must be first to partake of the crops. A hardworking farmer. So you have a soldier who's willing to endure hardship, that's engaged in battle, 
You've got the athlete who's to compete according to the rules, but a farmer's to be hardworking. If you're around farmers, they're hardworking. They get up really early and they come in late, they work and work and work and some more. Even more so in Timothy's day and Paul's day when they didn't have John Deere, you know what I'm saying? To help them out. Hardworking farmers. Not only is it hardworking, but there's patience with farming. It doesn't happen overnight. You do all the work, you plant the seed, God gives the increase, you've got to wait for the crop to come. And when the crop comes, then the farmer needs to be the first to partake of his crop so he can be sustained as a farmer. When we look at the gospel being applied to our life and caring about others and serving the Lord, we have to realize there's going to be hard work. It's not always easy of passing things on to others. It's messy at at times. It's difficult. And many times we won't see the fruit that God wants to bring without the hard work. Maybe you're in the midst of that. You've been laboring in a field that God has called you to and you've wondered, oh, is the fruit ever gonna come? Sometimes I think we give up just on the precipice of experiencing the harvest. Don't lose heart. Keep being faithful. Labor. And when the crop does come, be the first to rejoice. Be the first to partake of it. It also is when we're sharing with others from verse two and we're passing on spiritual truth, it has to first impact our own hearts and lives. And verse seven says, consider what I say and may the Lord give you understanding in all things. So we find that meditation, considering the truth, also leads to understanding. Sometimes we go, well, I don't understand what the Bible says at all. Well, have you given time to consider it, to meditate on it, to pray about it, to think about it, to ask some questions about it, to read some commentaries about it? Consider, Paul's saying, Timothy, I don't want you to just fly through this. I want you to really stop and think about how soldier, athlete, and farmer is to be applied to your life. And if you do, the Lord will give you understanding. Eastern mysticism speaks of meditation like empty everything out of your mind. And then somehow you're going to find the warm, happy place, right? right? That's not biblical meditation. Biblical meditation is you put God's word in. Not just empty your mind. You, You put God's word in and you meditate upon it. You, you chew on it over and over. And as we study the Bible, we want to read it in some large chunks, but we also want to take some verses and stew on it for weeks, stew on it for months, and, and memorize it and pray through it. And a lot of times as we do that, then the Lord grants us understanding. Verse 8, the key verse, the gospel, remember that Jesus Christ of the seed of David was raised from the dead according to my gospel. Now, please consider the recipient of these words. It's Timothy. Timothy's not a new believer. He's a pastor. And God is speaking to Timothy saying, you need to remember Jesus Christ. And you need to remember specifically this about Jesus Christ. He's of the seed of David. This speaks of the humanity of Christ, the incarnation of Christ, that he came through the lineage of David. As you study the Old Testament, please understand how gracious God is in his choosing. The lineage of Jesus Christ is not very impressive. Man would not pick the lineage of Jesus Christ, starting with the tribe of Judah. 
We love and worship songs to tote Jesus of the tribe of Judah. And Jesus is great, but the tribe of Judah were losers. I hate to tell you that. But when you read through Genesis, Judah was not a good guy at all. And who's standing in the background? It happens to be Joseph, who did make the right decisions. Everybody would say, well, why didn't Jesus come through the tribe of Joseph? Because God was making a point from the very beginning that he's gracious, that he came to save sinners, so God came through Judah. Also, the seed of David. Now, David was a great man, but he was also a murderer, an adulterer. He was a great worship leader, but he probably wouldn't have been the worship leader at our church. You know what I'm saying? Like, you commit adultery and you commit murder, a lot of churches aren't going to be hiring you to be their worship pastor. But what did David have? He had a heart after God, didn't he? He had a heart after God, and that's what God saw. So God made a promise to David and said, through your lineage, the Messiah is going to be born. And with this simple phrase, the seed of David, we understand that Christ's incarnation was foretold in the Old Testament. The gospel is that God came in human flesh. And then the gospel was Jesus was raised from the dead according to my gospel. Church, I want to encourage you and encourage myself tonight to start meditating upon the resurrection as we approach celebrating on April 20th. The resurrection is the most important point in the Bible Christ is risen. Jesus died for our sins and rose again. And because Christ is risen, we have forgiveness from our sins. We have freedom from sin. The power of sin is broken in our lives. Romans 8 tells us the same spirit that rose Christ from the dead lives in you. That's radical. The spirit of God rose Jesus from the dead and he lives in you. Victory. Victory over death. We have the absolute certainty of eternity because of the resurrection of Jesus Christ. And notice how this is packaged. This is all packaged inside of these issues of grace for daily calling. This is packaged inside of why should you care about passing truth on to someone else, the gospel of what Jesus Christ has done for us. It's right in the midst of the athlete, soldier, farmer. It's the resurrection of Jesus Christ that empowers us to be able to do that. We go on into verse 9, and it's the last way that the gospel is applied to our lives, and it's suffering. It's suffering in the gospel. Christ's resurrection, it empowers us to be able to suffer for the gospel. Verse 9, for which I suffer trouble as an evildoer, even to the point of chains, but the word of God is not chained. Don't you love that? Paul's saying I'm suffering as an evildoer because of the gospel. That's a strong word. He's saying I'm a criminal. And he's a criminal to the point of execution because of the gospel. He's chained, but the word of God is not chained. Church, brothers, sister in Christ, please hear this tonight. No government... No college, no university, no boss, no neighbor, no family member, no persecution is more powerful than the word of God. Nero's the guy on the scene here, and he hates Christians. Most historians 
believe that Nero started Rome on fire and then blamed it on the Christians. We don't know that for sure, but that's the common thought. No doubt after that, Nero just went through and started killing Christians, arresting and killing Christians. It's through the hand of Nero that Paul is put into this dungeon that he's going to be executed. And he's saying, you know what? I may be in chains by the hands of Nero, but God's word's not chained. God's word is powerful. Nobody can chain the word of God. And throughout history, we've seen the word of God break through in the hearts of the lives of people. We've seen the gospel and the power of the gospel break through in the hearts and the lives of people. This is to encourage us of the power of God's word. Get in it and share it. It's not chained. No one can chain the word of God. Verse 10, Therefore I endure all things for the sake of the elect, that they also may obtain the salvation which is in Christ Jesus with eternal glory. Paul understands that his suffering builds up others, that his suffering builds up believers, that his suffering gets the attention of an unbeliever and God uses that to bring someone to Jesus Christ. And this is the gospel applied in our lives. If we ever have the opportunity to suffer for righteousness' sake, to suffer for the gospel, we have to know that other believers are watching and being encouraged. We have to know that that's getting the attention of a lost and dying world. And Paul says, I'm willing to endure. I'm, I'm willing to suffer for the sake of the elect so that believers could be encouraged. And he ends us on this note in verse 11 through verse 13. He says, this is a faithful saying. Many believe that this was a common song, a hymn, a worship song that was sung in the early church. It says, for if we died with him, we shall also live with him. And notice the order. It's if, if we do this, then this is what will take place. If, if we died with him, we shall live with him. And this speaks of our identity in Christ where we come and lose our life for Christ's sake. It's not just speaking of being martyred like Paul is being martyred in the ultimate death, but it's speaking of daily choosing to lay our lives down. Jesus encouraged us to daily take up our cross and follow Jesus Christ. And if we die with him, if we surrender our life to him, we lay down our life for, for his will, then we'll also live with him eternally, but also presently. I find in my life that the days go much better when I can get my focus off myself, get the focus on what Christ has done for me, and say, I want to serve the people around me. The most depressing days are when I'm focused on my needs, my wants, and it's in that mindset. If we die with him, we'll live with him. If we endure, we shall reign with him. It's just been impressed upon my heart that it's not about this life. That's not what Jesus came all about. He wasn't of this world. This is just preparation for eternal life. Church, you're going to have loved ones die and go to heaven long before you want them to. You're going to have horrific things happen in this life. There's going to be times where you get sick. There's injustices that are going to take place. And you're like, man, this is not good news. I don't know why I came to church uh, here on this Saturday night. Jesus didn't come saying, hey, everything is just going to be peachy keen and rosy and wonderful in this life if you believe me and follow me. 
said, no, you're going to have difficulty in this life, but be of good cheer. I've overcome this world where we're going to heaven. And this verse says, if you endure, if you continue on steadfast in the midst of suffering, you get to reign with him. This is probably one of the more fascinating things to me about the scriptures. How's it going to play out to reign with the Lord? And we don't know, but we know in the parable of the talents, Jesus said, you are faithful with little, you're going to be faithful with much. You get to rule over this many cities. There is the millennial reign of Christ. It's a thousand years where Christ rules and reigns here on this earth. And we're going to have the opportunity to rule and reign with him. So the endurance here is worthwhile, not necessarily just for this life. Paul's just said, I'm doing it for the elect's sake. There is a purpose for our endurance here and now, but there's also a purpose for our endurance that if you endure, then you're going to get to reign with him. If we deny him, he will also deny us. Jesus said, if you confess me before men, I'll confess you before the Father. But if you deny me before men, then I'll deny you before the Father. Romans 10, 9 says, believe in your heart and confess with your mouth that Jesus Christ is Lord. It's a heart confession that's proclaimed with the mouth. The proclamation is important. This isn't necessarily speaking of someone who has denied the Lord, denied the Lord, they come to repentance, belief, and salvation, and they profess Christ. This is speaking of someone throughout their whole entire life that's denied Christ. They get to heaven and God's, I'm gonna play the tape for you. Here you said you hated me. Here you said you didn't want anything to do with me. This was your mantra. This was your anthem throughout your whole entire life. Depart from me. I never knew you. The importance of that proclamation of faith in Jesus Christ. If we are faithless, he remains faithful. He cannot deny himself. So now we've seen a change in the language. First, it's if we do this, then God will do this in verse 11 and 12. But in verse 13, it says, if we are faithless, then he remains faithful. He cannot deny himself. This is seen in Peter's life. He stumbled, didn't he? It wasn't that he had a lifetime of denying the Lord, but he had a moment where he denied the Lord as Christ was on trial and Jesus remained faithful in his life. Let me ask you this, and I want you to maybe write this question down and talk about it with somebody this week because it's through testimony that we're built up. What was a time in your life that you were faithless and God remained faithful? where you did struggle, where you stumbled, where you fell, where you did things that you never thought that you'd do. As the child of God, after you had received Christ as your Savior, and God remained faithful. So if we deny him, if we go through a whole life of denying Christ, he's going to deny us. But if we're faithless, he remains faithful. Why? Because he can't deny himself. Who he is, is faithful. So he's going to continue to be who he is even when we're faithless. My pastor growing up put it this way. I really like it. It's like Old Faithful. If we go to Old Faithful, Yellowstone, Jackson Hole, and you're with me and we, I go, okay. Every hour, Old Faithful's going to do its thing. And you're like, nah, not, not every hour. It's not going to do its thing. And, and you get distracted and you go off and come back and well, you missed it. It was, it was there. It, it, it happened. 
And now, no, it didn't happen. No. And this continues for the whole entire trip. And then at the end, you come back and you go, all right, let's give it a shot. Let's give it a try. Sure enough, on the hour, Old Faithful. Isn't that amazing? Every hour, on the hour, the Old Faithful says, it's time to spew. It's time to do my thing, right? See, there was unfaithfulness there. But yet, Old Faithful continued to stay true to who she is. That's, she's going to be faithful. And God, in the same way, he's faithful. So we can wander, we can be faithless, but he remains faithful. A lot of times in our lives, we think we've got to kind of prime the pump with God. If I praise him, he's going to be faithful. If I pray, he's going to be faithful. No, he's going to be faithful because that's who he is. And when we understand that he's faithful and he's gracious, it causes us to want to come and gaze at him. It causes us to say, Lord, I want to be close to you because you are faithful in my faithfulness. So what are some specific ways that we can apply the gospel from these 13 verses? First is strength and grace. Strength and grace. Jesus' death and resurrection is to provide the much-needed grace for our lives tonight. Maybe you're struggling in your thought life. Do Christians struggle in their thought life? Absolutely, we just don't like to ever talk about it. Christians struggle in their thought life. So you come to the Lord and say, God, I know these thoughts don't glorify you, and they're driving me crazy. And I know you died for me, and you rose again, and would you please pour grace into my life to help me deal with these thoughts? See how that's strength and grace? God, I know you've really called me to be a witness in my workplace, but I don't even want to be at work. I don't like my job. And I'm really struggling to have a heart for my boss, and I know I should. Would you please give me grace through your death and resurrection to change my heart and change my attitude toward my workplace? God, I'm really feeling convicted. I'm supposed to love my kids and pass on truth to them, but I've been counting the days till they move out. You know? Would you please give me grace? You see, you understand it? It's strength and grace, it's the gospel applied to our lives. And then also the gospel applied to our lives with sharing with others. What's the motivation to want to commit truth to others so that they can pass it on to others? Is because Jesus has died for them. Jesus loves them. It's God's way. Discipleship is God's way of reaching a lost and dying world. Why do we care about learning? Why tonight do we really care about the athlete, the farmer, and the soldier? Because Jesus has died for us and he rose again and he's enlisted us in a battle. And so we say, Lord, I want to learn. And then finally suffering, the gospel empowers us in a way that's apart from our own to be able to suffer for righteousness sake. Let's stand together and let's pray.